um, and welcome to Ashura Community Church. My name is Carrie Kingston, and I would like to give an extra special welcome to those of you who are visiting for the first time, or maybe this is your second or third time. We're so glad you're here, and we welcome you into our family. Washura Community Church is a gathered group of Christians who exist to give creative and meaningful worship to God and to discover and develop disciples of Jesus Christ. We strive to love God and love others fervently. I have a few announcements for you this morning. Um, first of all, parents of kids' church attendees, be sure you stop by the check-in table to check in your kids this morning. Um, also, guys, this is an announcement for you. Um, sign up for the men's breakfast on September 30th. Um, and let me see. The Welcome Center has a rock prayer card, a list of a few ways that the leadership team would invite you to pray for the rock students. Please pick one up on your way out of church today. And parents of rock students, we need a head count for our trip to Skate City on the 27th. So please make sure to send in all of your forms and money so we can arrange rides for everyone. Okay. Now, if you are interested in the Liberia missions trip of 2024, there's a meeting on October 1st in the lower level, room 112 at 8.30 a.m. And make sure that you look online um, for the bulletin and see all the other important announcements and updates that you need to know. Thank you. All right. We have another scripture reading, so I would invite you to join me in um, saying this. And if you would please rise as we read our scripture. This is from Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And I would ask you to join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you. I thank you so much that we can come to you, that you are a trustworthy and a faithful God, that you love us, that you're our Father, that you're watching over us. Lord, and I just pray um, in those times of trial, um, when we're feeling like our hope is, is withering, Lord, I just pray that you would give us strength, that you would sustain us, um, that you would walk alongside us through it, Lord. But I just pray that we would always fix our eyes on you. Because even if we don't see the way you're working, you are always working. Lord, and even if we think that things should be answered in the amount of time that we're giving you, we just thank you that um, it's your timing. It is your will. Um, and so we just lay all of our burdens at your feet this morning. And for those um, here, Lord, that are carrying heavy burdens, we just pray that as they walk out the doors today, that they would just feel a little lighter. In your name, Jesus, I pray. 
Amen. Well, good morning, Washer Community Church. Um, it's good to be with you this morning, and it was just a joy to be with all those who were able to make it Friday and Saturday. Um, you know, Word Training is a ministry um, that helped start that really is about partnering with local churches to equip every believer to be able to study the Word, know how to study it, to, to do it, to apply it, to be transformed by it, and then to teach it to others. So if you weren't able to make it, um, I challenge everyone that came here to at least pass it on to one other person. So if you saw a hand raised near you, you can ask them later, hey, what did you learn? I'd love to sit down with you and over a breakfast or a coffee and just, just teach me some of the things you've learned. So um, hopefully that will really encourage you. Um, so this morning we're going to look at the back book of Habakkuk. So if you want to turn there right now, it's in the Minor Prophets, um, which is after the big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, I always have to like sing a song to figure out where they are because I get them all mixed up. So it's like, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk. There we go. So, there, so there's Habakkuk. It's kind of in the middle of the 12 minor prophets. It's one of those where you can flip over and miss it because it's so short. But I wanted to preach it this morning because though it's a short prophetic book, it has a really powerful, transformative, and timeless message for us. Because here's the thing. The book of Habakkuk is wrestling with the question of why does God seem passive or inactive in dealing with evil? Why is God silent when evil is happening? And that's something that Habakkuk was wrestling with, you know, 25, 2600 years ago. And it's still something that every generation wrestles with, right? Sometimes we look around and go, where is God? It seems like he's absent from the picture. What is God up to? And interestingly, in the book of Habakkuk, he's, he begins the book in verse 2 saying, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? But then amazingly, at the very end of the book, in verse 18, we read, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God. He starts with this lament and this crying out, but somehow by the end, he's responding in joyful trust and worship. And the crazy thing is, his circumstances have not changed. It would make sense if the circumstances have changed. If God has somehow swooped in and done something, but actually for Habakkuk, nothing changes circumstantially. So how does he move from lament, crying out, to joyful trust and worship? That's the journey of the book of Habakkuk that I want us to be on this morning. And so I'm so grateful for Pastor Adam praying uh, for our time because we can't ever open God's Word without asking for God's help to understand it. Right? This is God's Word to us and we need His help to understand it. And, and whenever you start a book of the Bible to study it, it can be really helpful to kind of understand the, the structure or the flow of the whole book. And the book of Habakkuk kind of breaks down actually pretty easily. In verse 1, we read the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. He kind of gives us almost like a little header for us. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, we read a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. So the, the book's broken up into kind of two main sections. Chapter 1 and 2 is this prophecy that involves this back-and-forth dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk talks, God answers. Habakkuk talks again, God answers. 
And then chapter 3, the next big part, is Habakkuk's final prayerful hymn in response to what God's done. And so even just this structure helps us see that the change that happens is not the circumstances. There's something about his conversation with God that actually transforms him, that changes him. And so we're just going to kind of walk through the book, kind of round one of the dialogue, round two of the dialogue, and then the final kind of prayer of Habakkuk in response. And so listen as I, as I read Habakkuk's first, uh, first kind of lament. Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate, tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. It's kind of a bleak picture that Habakkuk shares with us, but in order for us to really understand it, we have to understand the historical context of what's going on. Have you ever walked into a, a movie halfway through, especially if it's like, say, a mystery or a whodunit? It's super confusing, isn't it? You don't know who the characters are. You don't know what's happened before. You're kind of lost, right? We need to understand what's going on here. So Habakkuk, we get, we get a couple hints of when this book is happening. We read in verse 4 that the law is paralyzed. So that refers to the Old Testament law. So Habakkuk is not complaining about the evil of the people out there. He's complaining about the evil of the people of Israel. That the people of Israel are doing evil and they're not living out the law. And in verse 6, we read in a little bit that God will raise up the Babylonians. So that gives us a time frame. The Babylonians were a world power at a certain time period. So you had King David about 1000 BC, the great Israelite king. His son Solomon, a wise king who kind of ends poorly. Then uh, Rehoboam comes to the throne and the kingdom of Israel splits into two. Ten tribes in the north, the kingdom of Israel. Two tribes in the south, the kingdom of Judah. And the Assyrians are the dominant world power and they take out the northern kingdom, send them into exile. And then the Babylonians rise to power. So this is likely happening after the northern kingdom has gone into exile, but the kingdom of Judah is still around. They're still hanging on, but as Habakkuk says, they're doing injustice. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. You can read in some of the other prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others that they're, they're, not, they're not worshiping God alone. They've literally put inside the temple altars and statues to other gods. Right? I mean, this is, God's like, it's like you took your mistress and moved her into the house with me. That's not okay. They're, they're, they're not kind to the poor. There's injustice. There's bribery. There's false prophets. In fact, when Jeremiah goes to speak to the king Zedekiah, one of the last kings, and his servant Baruch goes and delivers the message to the king, as Baruch reads the message that Jeremiah wrote down, gives him one page at a time, the king slices up the pages and throws them in the fire. That's how little he cares about God. This is what's going on with the people, and it's a bleak picture. Habakkuk's like, God, why are you allowing your people, your own people to do evil, but 
there's a bigger concern he has. It's not just that the people are doing evil, but it's that God doesn't seem to care, right? You see that in verse 2 and 3? Why do you not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Habakkuk's looking around and his complaint is, God, it sure seems like you don't care because if you cared, you'd be doing something about it right now. And you're not. Well, when we think about that context, we can see how it's not that hard to see how it connects with us today, isn't it? Ever been there? Maybe you're there right now where there's something going on in your life. Even the people that are supposed to love and care about you, that's hard and painful and difficult, and it feels like God is nowhere to be seen. Maybe you wrestle with that and go, why God? And, And maybe for some of you when that happens, you just shut down. And you just turn off. You kind of just close up your relationship with God. Maybe some of you even just go through the motions and pretend that everything's fine because, you know, quote, good Christians aren't supposed to struggle, right? Or maybe you lash out that when things get hard, you lash out and you take out that pain and hurt on others. But here, Habakkuk's actually giving us an example of how to respond. Is even though you might say, well, Habakkuk's got no faith, he's questioning God, he still comes to God. If he really thought God absolutely didn't care, he wouldn't even bother going and talking to God. But the fact that Habakkuk is coming to God and saying, God, what are you up to? Shows he still believes that God could do something about it. He still believes that God might care. He still believes that God is the one worth bringing his heart to with all his emotions and complaints and frustrations because maybe God will do something. It's a mustard seed of faith, but it's still something of faith, isn't it? And I think this is a beautiful image of what we are called to do and we are struggling, is God wants to invite us to this because as we keep reading, we'll see God never strikes Habakkuk down with lightning. How dare you question me, Habakkuk? He never does that. He meets him in his complaint and he walks with him through it. He won't leave him there. But he will meet him there. So how does God meet him? Well, we read, continuing in verse 5 of chapter 1, God says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. And we talked in the workshop about how prophets use a lot of imagery, and you probably heard that, right? Horses like wolves and leopards, they sweep by like the wind, just sweeping everything away in their path. And so God's answer is, Habakkuk, 
I know you're frustrated that evil's not being dealt with, so good news, I'm just going to bring judgment from the Babylonians. And it's so crazy, you wouldn't believe it even if I told you, and I'm telling you. But it shouldn't have been a surprise on one hand, because way back when Moses first told the generation about to enter the land, all right, you're going to go in the land, he told them, if you continuously disobey, if you disobey and disobey and disobey, God says he will send another nation, and they'll swoop in like an eagle. And that's the language picked up here in Habakkuk for that reason. They'll swoop in like an eagle and take you away. That's what's going to happen if you keep going down this road. God's not throwing a temper tantrum here. He's not being mean, right? It's, it's kind of like uh, if you're a parent and you've got your kids and you're like, okay, there's cake for dessert, but you have to finish your vegetables, right? And bedtime's at, you know, 7, so by 6.30, if you're not done eating, it's over, right? The cake's going away. And all through dinner, keep reminding them, finish your vegetables, finish your vegetables, and they never do. And then at 6.30, they're not done eating their vegetables, and you're like, sorry, the cake's going away. And they're like, oh, my parents, the meanest. They didn't give me any cake, right? And you can imagine that if you didn't know any of the situation and that kid came up to you, they'd say, do you know what my parent did? They give my siblings cake, but they didn't give me any. It's so unfair. But really the story is the parent warned them again and again and again, and they just wouldn't listen. And that's God's response, because that's how you have to deal with sin eventually, is you have to bring judgment. And so Habakkuk, when he hears the good news that God will bring judgment, says, oh, all my problems are taken care of. Thank you, God. I can go on my way now, right? No, look at what Habakkuk says in verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swell up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. And by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Habakkuk says, wait, 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 God, time out. You're holy. You're perfect. You are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate wrongdoing. And your answer to judge your people for their evil is to use a more evil nation to judge them? Your solution to dealing with the evil among us is to use a different evil? That doesn't make any sense. Your plan to fix all this through judgment doesn't add up. And what's more, if they're going to come and exile us and wipe us out, like for an ancient Near Eastern person, if your country is conquered, that's because your God was defeated and destroyed and killed. Because the God is the protector of your people. So that's why he says in verse 12, you will never die. Like, 
if we get wiped out, then it's like you're dying. It's like you've signaled to the whole world that you were destroyed, that you were defeated. How could you possibly do this, God? It makes no sense. And then he turns to this image, this parable, right? That the nations are like fish in the sea. And he's saying, you've abandoned us. You made us, but now you're letting this rogue fisherman babble and just come along and just capture all the fish in the sea. And he doesn't even acknowledge you as God. He, he worships his own nets, for goodness sake. Are you really just going to let Babylon just go on and on and on, destroying, abandoning us just to judgment? Is that really the answer? You're just going to judge us and let everyone else get off with it? Is that really your answer, God? And so he says, I will stand at my watch. and I'm going to look to see what he will say to me. I, God, I want an answer. This does not add up. It does not make sense. And whether you think he's proud or arrogant in doing this or whether you think he's just confused and hurting, it doesn't really matter. The point is Habakkuk's like, that was not enough of an answer. I need something more, God. And again, God answers him. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. I'm just going to pause here. He says, okay, Habakkuk, I've got something for you. I've got a revelation. I've got another vision for you. Write it down. Right? But here's the deal. It's going to linger. And you're going to have to wait for it. It will certainly come, verse 3. But you're going to have to wait for it. It's not that I'm absent. It's that I'm not working in your timing. And what, and what is this vision he gives? I think it's verses 6 through 20. Where basically picks up this image that in the future, all of these nations who have been defeated by Babylon will pick up a taunt. So verse 6, he says, Will not all of them, that is the nations that Babylon's judged, taunt him, that is Babylon, with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds the city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. 
Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes a trust in his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to a lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. He's saying, Habakkuk, there's going to be a day coming when all these nations that have been judged by Babylon will rise up and they'll pronounce these woes over him. There will be this reversal of judgment. Did you see that reversal language? These five woes. In verses 6 through 8, he says, you've plundered many nations, verse 8, but now you'll get plundered, Babylon. Verses 9 through 11, you built up your house by unjust gain, but now the very beamwork and walls will cry out against you and crumble upon you. Verses 12 to 14, you you built a city with bloodshed. You did this basically to make a name for yourself. That's what empires are about. You make a name for yourself so that your glory will live on. But whose glory will live on in the end? The glory of the Lord. His glory will cover the earth, not Babylon's. In verses 15 through 17, they made the nations drink the cup of wrath and judgment till they were drunk on it. And now the cup of God's wrath is coming around to him, verse 16, and the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm Babylon. And verses 18 to 20, the last woe is, woe to you, Babylon, because you made wood and stone idols and pretended that they were gods that gave you victory, but they can give you nothing. The one who is actually in control is the Lord. He is in his holy temple. God is over all. Even if on the surface it looks like he's not in charge, he's actually the one who is over it all, in charge of it all, and all the earth will be silent before him. The image here is you come before the throne of the king who's going to render judgment and you have nothing to say in defense. The whole world will stand before God and his answer to Habakkuk in the end is, yes, the people of Israel will be judged and yes, all the nations will be judged. Everyone will be judged, Habakkuk. Everyone will stand before me and be utterly silent before my judgment seat. Nothing to say. I will end all evil. On one hand, it's probably what Habakkuk and all of us want, right? We want God to end evil. We just don't like the idea that we have to face it ourselves as judgment. So is there any way out of this? Because so far, all we've heard is God saying, don't worry, I'll judge you and you and you and you and you. I'll judge all of you. Is there any way out? There is. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, I skipped over it on purpose. God tells them with this vision of coming judgment, he says, there's two ways to respond here. The enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. Verse 5, wine betrays him. It's like he, he wants to constantly do more evil. He's arrogant, never at rest. He's as greedy as the grave. You can go your own way, pursuing your own desires, and it will never be enough. Or, the second half of verse 4, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Or sometimes translate faith. It's really the same word. The idea is the righteous person is the one who trusts God 
and who keeps on trusting God through how they live. Faith and faithfulness, same thing. It's trust lived out. The righteous person will live by trust. The righteous person can make it through the judgment by trusting in God and waiting on His perfect timing to save. That's what God tells Habakkuk. Will you trust me? Not because I've given you all the answers, but I've promised enough that you can trust me. And so how does Habakkuk respond when we look at chapter 3? It's the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. And at the very end, we told, it's, we're told it's for the director of music. So he wanted this to be sung. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hand where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. So here's Habakkuk, and he has this prayer where he says, God, I've heard of your fame, and I want you to repeat them. And this vision, so to speak, that he describes is, all these imageries that describe God's majesty, His power, right? You know, He comes out and the earth shakes when He stands there. His splendors like the sunrise, right? And He uses all these imagery of past rescues that God has done for His people. Exodus imagery, right? He talks about the waters, right? And being angry against them. He talks about the sun and moon standing still in the heavens like with Joshua at a battle. He talks about how He comes out and strides through the earth threshing the nations to deliver his people and save the anointed one. Habakkuk is preaching to himself, this is who God is. 
This is what He's done. Suddenly, it's like His view is taken off of what's going on around Him, off of what's going on with the Babylonians, and He's focused on God, and He sees God in His majesty and His past faithfulness. And He says in verse 16, My heart pounded. My lips quivered. My legs trembled. I mean, He's just aware of the awesomeness of God. And just as in the end of chapter 2, we hear the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. We see Habakkuk saying that he will wait patiently for the day of calamity. That he will be still and quiet. And even if the only way to be saved is to pass through the judgment about to come, he will trust in God. Even if the Babylonians come and they strip all their crops, the fig trees, the the grapes, the olives, and they take all their cattle so that they are literally left destitute with nothing to support them. Even if they are reduced to nothing, yet, verse 18, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. See, the amazing thing about Habakkuk is not that he says, okay, now that you've rescued me, I will rejoice in how good you are. He says, I'm going to rejoice in you and I'm going to trust in you and your promises even if I never see them. Even if I never see the rescue. Even if I never experience the rescue. Because here's the thing. We all love it, singing songs and the stories in our lives where we go through a hard thing and we see God rescue us. And we see giants fall and all kinds of amazing things. But sometimes you get thrown in the lion's den and he closes the lion's mouth and sometimes he lets his prophets get sawn in two. Sometimes God saves in the here and now, and sometimes the salvation is on the other side of death in the eternity of glory. But either way, God is worth trusting. That's what Habakkuk comes to see. That God isn't inactive. God isn't passive. It's just that God's timing is not Habakkuk's. And so he will trust him in the in-between. He can move from lament to joyful trust Because he's trusting in who God is and his promises. That's the pendulum. The thing in the middle that causes the switch. I don't know if I'm using the right word. (laughs) But it's trust in God and his promises. So how does this connect for us today? Well, whenever we're reading the Old Testament, we have to see how it connects to Jesus before it connects to us. And here's the thing. Just like in Habakkuk's day, when God saw that his people had a sin problem. And guess what? The exile into Babylon didn't fix their sin problem. It didn't change them into people that would love God with all their hearts. So judgment still had to come. And so God was going to say, look around, be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. Paul actually uses that verse from Habakkuk 1.5 and says, do you know what the thing is that you would not believe if told that God did to deal with our sin problem? He sent His Son to die. That God Himself entered the story and took the judgment. That the Messiah King that we were hoping would bring us victory over the nations instead died at the hands of the nations. That's His rescue plan. To die to take the judgment and rise again so you don't have to face the judgment. And nobody saw it coming. Not even the disciples who walked with Jesus for three years. And he told them, 
this is the plan. I'm going to die and rise again. Tells them three times in the Gospels. And then he dies, and they're all like, oh, that's over. They don't even get it. No one saw it coming. Really, God's answer to all the evil in the world, it isn't voting in the right politician? No. It's not fixing things through some human structure? No. His plan to deal with the evil in this world is to come and die for us? Yes. Be utterly amazed and don't miss it because it's crazy because you wouldn't have made it up. Because see, the judgment has to come. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and guess what? Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Yeah. And so Paul in both Romans and Galatians says, you have a choice. You can try to somehow be good enough on your own and I can tell you it won't work because you have to be perfect. Or the righteous will live by faith. That the way to live, the way to get through the judgment on the other side alive is to trust in Jesus as your substitute so that you say, Jesus, I trust that when you died, you died for me. So I've already passed through judgment. There's no more judgment to come. And so I'm going to keep trusting you day after day and following you even though you haven't fully dealt with all evil, because one day you will come back and judge all evil perfectly. And so the author of Hebrews picks up this verse, the righteous shall live by faith, and he's not talking about initially getting in. He's saying this is how you continue to endure. He writes to Christians who are experiencing persecution and hardship, and he says, remember, the righteous live by faith. Keep trusting. Others have lived the life of trust before, and they've made it to the end. Some of them receiving it in this life. Some of them having to wait till the other side of death to get the reward. But because of Jesus, you can trust God. A God who is willing to send His own Son to die to rescue you is a God you can trust with all the other unanswered questions. Even though I don't know what He's doing right now in my life or in your life or in our culture or our world, I know what He's done in Jesus and I know what He's going to do. One day he'll come and end all evil and make this world perfect again. And so this morning, I just want to ask you, have you trusted in Jesus to rescue you from God's judgment? And it's the judgment we've brought on ourselves, friends. He has warned again and again. And this morning, I want to hear you from the back of this warning. Judgment will come. It's inevitable. In order for God to be good, he has to punish our evil but you can trust in Jesus and be rescued from that thing. You can enter into a relationship with him, be adopted into his family by trusting in him and walking in trust in him until the day he calls you home. So this morning, I ask you to do that. For some of you this morning, you might say, well, I'm already someone who trusts in Jesus, but man, I'm struggling in a situation in my life right now to trust. Maybe you went right in verse 17, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes in the vines, but you might be realizing that today God is inviting you to pray this kind of prayer. God, though my unsaved family member never comes to faith, yet I'll rejoice and trust in you. Though my job never satisfies me, yet I will rejoice and trust in you. Though I have conflict with people, that I've done my best to fix and it's still broken and I carry the pain of that, yet I will rejoice and trust in you. 
You can fill in the blank with what's there. But God is inviting you to trust you, not because He might fix your situation in this life, but because He is trustworthy in your situation, whether it gets fixed now or in the future. And we do that not by mustering up some faith, but by doing what Habakkuk does. We set our eyes on God. We say, God, I see who you are, that you're good and faithful. I see what you've done in the past, and so that gives me faith to trust you for the future. So friends, we are invited to bring our hearts with our complaints, with our laments to God. He doesn't shut us down. He invites us to come to Him with that. And He says, as you come to me, remember who I am, the faithful God. Remember what I've done, my faithful promises, and trust me. Rejoice in me. Because the way of faith is the way that moves us from lament to joyful trust in the God who so loved us, He gave us His only Son. Father, Romans 8.32 tells us, For you who did not spare your own son, how will you not graciously give us all things? If you are for us, who can be against us? So I pray, Father, every person here would trust in your son Jesus so that they would know you are for them. And that every person here would bring their hearts with whatever pain, sorrow, and challenges they're carrying right now to you. And they would know that you are going to be with them And that though it lingers, you will one day make everything right. You will wipe away every tear from every eye. How we long for that day to come. So pray that as we wait, that we would wait and trust on you. You've been so faithful. You will be faithful. So help us to walk by faith. And find our life in you. Amen.